thinking particularly on those two words, I thirst. Now, hearing those words, you might already be thinking, I kind of think I know where the sermon's going to go tonight. You know, maybe you expect me to give you a very literal description of the tortures that the Lord endured on the cross and his excruciating thirst. After all, I said, the focus is on I thirst. Or maybe you expect me to give you some sort of an opening illustration tonight, something about a hot day and hard work, something designed to get you to remember a time when you were really, really thirsty. Not going to do that, though. Instead, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. What do you thirst for? What do you thirst for? What do we thirst for? Now, some of you also who've heard a lot of sermons in your life may wonder whether that's a trick question. You've had pastors before ask you a question knowing that they were expecting you to give the wrong answer only that, so they could point out to you how wrong you really are. What do you thirst for? See, the pastor might say when you rattle off five or six answers, come on, folks, you know we shouldn't be thirsting for things. We shouldn't want things. But guess what? I'm not trying to trick you with that question. In fact, tonight I'm going to take a certain number of things for granted. I am going to assume tonight, which is a dangerous activity, that I am talking to a Christian church. I'm going to assume tonight that everybody here is a Christ follower. I'm going to assume tonight that you are those redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, those that the Bible calls the body of Christ. That's my assumption. So I'm talking to those of you who know the promise of an end to suffering because Christ died for you. Christ died for me. Christ died for all of us. So I'm talking to you. I'm talking to those of you who fit the description of our second reading, where it says, Since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, when you hear that, you ought to hear Peter calling you, calling me, calling this church to arm ourselves with the same thinking of Christ. That's what I hear Peter saying. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. I also hear Peter saying that we are done with sin. But I also know that I struggle with sin. And so do you. So tonight, I want you to think about yourself as that body of Christ for a moment. To think about yourself as a sinner, but not just an ordinary sinner, but think of yourself as a saved sinner who is already armed with that same manner of thinking that Christ has. You got that picture? You're a saved sinner with the mind of Christ. Now let me ask that question again. What do you thirst for as a saved sinner with the mind of Christ? I ask myself that question. I can think of a number of answers. You know, I, I know that uh, I'd probably join... Uh, People in the Christian church say that we, we certainly thirst for justice and an end to suffering. 
We thirst for a stronger economy, for those people without work to find jobs to be able to provide for their families. We thirst for safety, for people like those who live in Haiti to get the supplies and the protection that they need. We thirst for an end to abortion and slavery and the end to sin and the end to death and end to the power of the devil in our life. In fact, if you have a prayer list that you keep up, maybe as I do, a prayer journal, if you look at the list of people that you're praying for, that's probably a good indicator of what you really thirst for. Now, that's kind of the introduction to the message. It's be at this point now where I'm supposed to kind of turn the corner in a typical sermon. Now, what can I do at this point? I, I could go back to the gospel lesson, back to John 19 for a little bit, take a closer look at that. I could point out to you that John lets us know that this drink was given to Jesus. Why? To fulfill the scriptures. In fact, I could probably take you back to Psalm 69, uh, verse 21, where that scripture is, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. I could tell you that just as God promised a brief release from suffering for Jesus in the form of a drink from the cross, that he does the same for us. I could even attach that somehow to communion, how that's a brief drink for us to cure our thirst on life's journey. Now, I could tell you that. not going to tell you that. This is the part of the sermon, and there's always this in the sermon. Every sermon you ever hear, this is the part of the sermon where the pastor is supposed to tell you that your thirst will be quenched. Jesus says, I thirst. God took care of him. God will take care of you. Folks, your, you will, your thirst will be quenched. Go with God's peace. Sin no more. Amen. That's the way sermons typically are supposed to go. But I'm not going to tell you that either. And the reason is because it's not true. It's not true. We thirst. I thirst. You thirst sometimes. And sometimes there is absolutely no relief for that thirst. Sometimes there is no cure for cancer. Sometimes there is no new job Coming. Sometimes the house actually gets foreclosed on. Sometimes there is no water to quench the thirst. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about some children in Haiti. You may remember I told you the story about two children, actually three children that were buried under the rubble when that six-story apartment collapsed on them. Two were rescued, but one of them died. Remember, Kiki and Sabrina lived through that. Sabrina, when she came out, told the reporters, my brother asked for water every day. He asked for water on Wednesday, he asked for water on Thursday, and he asked for water on Friday. And then he died of dehydration. I mean, sometimes we thirst for all kinds of things, and nothing comes to meet our need. Let me ask you, what do you say to the Sabrinas of our world? People who are really, really thirsty. What do you say to them? You just say, well, I'll send them to the pastor. He's probably got something to say. 
I don't know. I'm going to tell you what we often say to them. We toss out what I call church cliches. People are in really a hard time. What do we tell them? Oh, don't worry. All things work for the good of those who love God. I said that once to somebody. You know what they said to me? I'm going to put it in kind terms. They said, look, Jack, I love God just as much as you, and my life is screwed up. So don't give me any of that baloney. I had tossed out a cheap church cliche. By the way, I only threw out part of the Bible passage, too. I quoted Scripture to them. Do you know that? The Bible doesn't say everything works out for the good of those who love God. It says it works out for the good of those who love God according to his plan. A little bit of difference in there. But we have countless little church cliches that we kind of toss out to people in situations. Phrases that sound really good, but we use them so often sometimes that they almost become meaningless in our own ears. I mean, try a gospel cliche, if you will, on somebody like Sabrina and her brother Kiki and see what they would have to say. I thirst. I'm in trouble. And you say, oh, look, Jesus died for you on the cross. I wonder what they would say to that. It doesn't make any sense. See, I'm supposed to have something that would quench people's thirst. I may be honest with you, friends. There have been times in my 25 years in the pastoral ministry when people were dying of thirst and showed up in my office or caught me at a coffee shop or called me on the telephone, and they were dying of thirst, not because they hadn't had anything to drink, but their life was just withering away, and I had nothing to give them. And the reason was because I was thirsty, too. I'm no different than other people. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, I just don't, didn't know what to say. Other than, oh, well, it'll turn out okay. But guess what? It's still my job, isn't it? It's still my job to stand up here in front of you tonight and toss out another Christian cliche. You ready for it? Jesus lives. There you go. Jesus lives. That might be what you're expecting. I'm not sure. And at this point, I really don't have anything that makes any more sense than that. Jesus lives. It's the only news that can possibly be good when you're thirsting. Jesus lives. But the question is, is that enough? If this good news, this gospel that Jesus lives doesn't seem like enough, then, friends, maybe it's because you don't, really, you don't realize what you really need. I'm going to say that again. That, that is so important. If this good news, the gospel, that Jesus lives, doesn't seem like enough. Maybe it's because you don't realize what you really need. See, all too often, you and I live in the moment. Uh, we live in the midst of whatever suffering we are currently in. Financial suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering. We're in the midst of that, and... and we can't see what we really need. 
We focus all of our attention on what? Alleviating the pain. Putting an end to the suffering right here and now. I was watching um, public television last night, and they ran a little ad that says the current drug problem among the students in Arkansas are prescription drugs. They get them from mom and dad, or well, you, you buy them anywhere. You know, they're medicating themselves to death. They're in some pain, and they want to get rid of it right now, and they don't realize what the real problem is. You know, you can put an end to pain and suffering momentarily. I mean, if you think about Jesus on the cross, thirsting on that cross, I thirst, he was suffering. But there was an end to his suffering, wasn't there? He died. That was it. That was the end to his suffering. And when he died, he died for the sins which had brought so much suffering into this world and into our own lives. But you know, an end to suffering is never enough. Even if the pain is numbed, the wound still remains. See, what we really need is ultimate healing. And that's the promise that we always see in Jesus' resurrection. That's why the best thing I can say to you tonight, friends, is no matter what you're suffering with, Jesus lives. And because he lives, we shall live too. See, with his resurrection, Jesus brings more than just an end to our suffering. He brings us the promise where someday everything is going to be right. All will be healed. All will be made whole. All the things that hurt us now, all the things that make us less than what God created us to be, are all going to be healed and put back the way it was supposed to be. I have a good friend, Robert Tony. Robert is the, um, one of the chaplains at Louisiana State Prison in Angola. His father is in the midst of dying right now. He's got congestive heart failure. His kidneys have failed. They're doing everything they can in the last three or four or five days to keep his father alive. But the doctor finally told him the other day, Robert, you're going to need to make a choice. You know, we can continue with these machines and the medication to keep your father alive, or you can just, plain simple, make him comfortable. So that's where they're at. His father is kind of in and out of consciousness. But I had an email from Robert this morning, and he said he had a wonderful conversation with his dad. And his dad told him, Robert, don't worry about me. All the pain that I'm in now, which has been medicated, all the suffering, the fact that my heart doesn't work, my kidneys don't work, not much doesn't work, in a matter of time, it's all going to work perfectly again. It'll all be better. Pain and suffering will be gone, and I will be healed. Then he told Robert, and you're going to have some pain too when I'm gone, I know. I mean, those of you that have ever lost anybody, whether it be a husband or a wife, or whether it be a brother or an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a grandpa, there's always pain when somebody dies. He said, Robert, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience suffering, but guess what? 
someday that will all be gone too. A couple of nights ago, Nancy and I went to a concert over at the Baptist Church and lived to tell about it. We went and saw one of my favorite groups, Big Daddy Weave. And he has a song which is called Changing Neighborhoods. I love that song, Changing Neighborhoods. He just says, you know, when sin and everything just crawls all over you and you feel like you you can't go on, guess what? You can look forward to the day when you'll be changing neighborhoods. Isn't that kind of cool to think that someday we can change neighborhoods? I don't know about you, but that's the hope that keeps me going when I thirst, that Jesus lives. Paul says in, his te- in our text, it's the same way of thinking as Christ. But, you know, that does not always alleviate the pain right now. We still thirst. Now, the question is, do we need to wait with parched throats for that final day when we change neighborhoods? Can our suffering not be alleviated right now? Well, the answer is sure it can. God daily intervenes in the lives of his people. I mean, in countless ways, if you will, God gives us little sips of water so that we can endure through this drought of life. In the old communion liturgy, it referred to communion as what? A foretaste of that great feast which is to come. It says, you're going to get a little now to help you until you have the big banquet in heaven. Now, help doesn't always come. Pain doesn't always disappear. But Christ lives, and that gives us hope. I think of Kiki and Sabrina. Kiki and Sabrina may have lost their brother, but guess what? Those two were rescued. In fact, that's one of the reasons why you and I are here tonight. See, we are the body of Christ in this hurting and suffering world. We are the instruments that God chooses and uses to bring sips of water to people who are suffering on the journey of life. We are the people that God chooses and uses to alleviate suffering and bring hope in the here and now to people as we wait for the day when real healing finally comes. You and I, not just the pastor, but everybody in the body of Christ, we are the ones who God chooses and uses to wipe the tears from the eyes of other people while they wait for that sorrow to finally end. You and I are the people God chooses and uses to bring those little sips of water to other people as we wait for the day when that drought finally comes to an end. The day when Jesus, the living water, comes back. And as he told that woman at the well, and when you get the living water, you will thirst no more. In your worship folder, there is a prayer. And uh, we want to pray that, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about a hymn we're going to sing in closing, and we'll be done. Well, let's pray. O Lord Christ, we thirst not always knowing what we need, yet you are the living water that makes us whole. 
O Lord, our thirst reminds us that life alone is nothing without life together, and that life together is nothing without life in you. Lift up the world, thirsting for righteousness. You are the light of the world. O Lord, we lift up the church, your people everywhere, and this congregation, thirsting for grace. You are the vine, and we are the branches. Lord, we lift up the sick and suffering. We lift up those who grieve. We lift up all who are thirsting for wholeness and healing. You are the resurrection and the life. Lord, we thirst, and you quench us with everything good to live according to the Spirit. You are the way, the truth, and the life. For you, Lord, live and reign. Father, in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.